This episode of the Outer Limits podcast is dedicated to the memory of Harlan Ellison, the incomparable sci-fi writer who gave us the seminal episodes Soldier and Demon with a Glass Hand. He was 84 years old. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. We can change the focus to a soft blur or sharpen it to crystal clarity. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to the outer limits. We've spoken before about the subject of guilt. How guilt can be the impetus for change in a person's life, be it good or bad, depending on the circumstances. Sure, it can serve as the catalyst for someone to clean up or straighten out their lives, but it can also send a person spiraling into madness. There's a quote from British politician Charles James Fox that states, He that is conscious of guilt cannot bear the innocence of others, so they will try to reduce all others to their own level. You know, we all deal with guilt or regret in some point in our lives, be it from something we did or something we failed to do. It isn't always easy to deal with, but we do our best and we cope. Every now and then we may come across an object or a person or a place that triggers the memory of that time. You're immediately thrown back into that headspace and it can take quite a while to regain your composure. Now imagine being constantly reminded of that memory day in and day out. These memories slowly eroding any sense of self-composure there may have been. Would it be enough to drive you mad? What would you be willing to do to free yourself from such a nightmare scenario? You know, when I think of guilt-ridden madness, one story that immediately springs to mind is Edgar Allan Poe's A Telltale Heart. You know, where the narrator's guilt of a murder he committed results in him hearing the heartbeat of his victim emanating from beneath the floorboards where he is buried. In tonight's story, we meet Major Brothers, a man so haunted by a memory that he is very near the breaking point. Not helping matters is the fact that Major Brothers is stationed in the middle of the Arctic, far removed from any distractions civilization may have to offer. You know, the Cold War was still very much close to hot war at this point in history. The military was maintaining an ever-ready presence across the globe. That way the US would be ready to launch a counteroffensive immediately in the event of an attack from the Soviet Union. To maintain this heightened readiness, military units were active on land, air, and sea 24 hours a day. That's an incredible amount of time to be confined to just a submarine or an aircraft or a base and to be under that much stress. A year after the airing of this episode, we'll see the release of Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, which is one of my all-time favorite films. You know, in that film we see an army base commander lose his mind and order a nuclear attack on Russia. So the fear of Cold War madness was very much in the public consciousness. So without the distractions of normal civilization, Major Brothers is stationed in the Arctic with only his thoughts at the end of the day. One can see the volatility of this type of setting paired with a guilt-ridden mind. This is fertile ground for the roots of madness to flourish. Can Major Brothers withstand this scenario? If not, how far would he be willing to go to reestablish any sense of normalcy? We'll have our answers shortly.
One other aspect at play in this episode is Dr. Hamilton's machine that allows two individuals to share thoughts. It's a fascinating concept to think about. You know, we encounter people every single day. Each person has their own story, their own unique perspective on the world. Just because a person nods and smiles doesn't mean that everything is particularly peachy with that individual. In some way, we all face a form of struggle, be it physical, mental, or even societal. And there is a great unity in shared struggle. You know, if we had the ability to see the world through each other's eyes and share each other's perspectives, there's great potential for better understanding the world we live in, as well as the people we share it with. Of course, in reality, the thought of someone sharing your innermost thoughts is an absolutely terrifying idea. And everyone, including myself, would never undergo such a procedure. No matter how great the benefits are, the risks are just too great, especially as the control voice tells us when you include the human factor. Now, as always, I will be spoiling tonight's episode, so if you haven't seen The Human Factor, you can find it streaming on Hulu and in beautiful high-definition Blu-ray from the good folks at Kino Lorber. Now, let's sit quietly and let Vic Perrin's control voice set the stage for tonight's episode, The Human Factor. In northern Greenland, the mountains stand like a wall along Victoria Channel, whose straight course marks the line of the Great Baffin Fault. Until recently, not even the Eskimos ventured into this Arctic waste. But today, as in other lonely places of the world, the land is dominated by those instruments of detection which stand as a grim reminder of man's fear of man. This is Point Taboo, a name given this predominantly underground base by a young officer who explained that the letters in Taboo stood for total abandonment of better understanding. Some 200 men and a few women make this their permanent residence. Their task is to maintain a constant alert against enemy attack and be prepared to respond to it devastatingly. First broadcast on November 11, 1963, written by David Duncan, directed by Abner Bieberman, who makes his first and only contribution to The Outer Limits with this episode. Cinematography by Conrad Hall. We open in Point Taboo in the middle of a snowstorm. A group of men are dragging a large container across the snow to the entrance of the base, where they carry it inside. I love the opening scene. You really get a sense of the isolation and you can feel the uneasiness creep in as you watch these men drag this cargo in a blizzard. The camera angles and movements really add to this. As the camera slowly creeps toward the entrance of the base, so too do we enter the story about to unfold. I also thought mentioning a younger officer naming the base Total Abandonment of Better Understanding was a nice touch. It's small, but it seeks the feeling of isolation just a little deeper in our minds. Once inside, the men place the container onto the ground. <laughs> it's completely accident-proof, Colonel. Uh, this lead shielding keeps the radiation at a safe level. And the fissionable components are separated by graphite neutron absorbers. There can't possibly be a detonation unless the absorbers are removed. Uh, how's that done? By this bar. When it goes down, the absorbers are rejected, the bomb explodes instantly. Mm. Of course, the bar is locked in place. It won't be unlocked until the bomb is installed at the isthmus. And the keys to the lock? There's only one key. I have it. Then I must have that key. Major Brothers! I am the project engineer. The Heckler Isthmus must be destroyed. Now hand over that key, Major Giles. Just then, an earthquake strikes the facility, causing the men to fall to the ground. The despondent man is Major Brothers, who is played by actor Harry Gardino. 
who appeared in numerous TV shows including Cheers, Hawaii Five-0, and in a season two episode of Rod Serling's Night Gallery where he played Charlie Rogan in the segment titled The Miracle at Camafeo. The earthquake passes and the men gather themselves as a voice comes over the loudspeaker. Attention, all personnel. Attention, all personnel. The disturbance you have just experienced was a minor earthquake. It's here. Our instruments... It's finally here. ...that the epicenter is near the Hecla Isthmus. Other minor shocks may be expected during the next 24 hours. It's coming to get us! It's coming! Major Brothers rushes to the elevator and travels to the base entrance. The doors swing open and we get an incredible shot. The camera holds still, and as Major Brothers approaches the camera, the lighting and focus shift to his eyes. I absolutely love this shot. Just then, a ghostly image appears, and Major Brothers stares frightened as the ghostly figure reaches out for him. In a panic, Major Brothers runs back into the base. Whatever this apparition is, and what it wants, remains to be seen. We then go to the Human Factor Research Facility, and we meet Dr. James Hamilton and Ingrid Larkin. Dr. Hamilton has created a machine that can allow two people to share the same thoughts and emotions simultaneously. This machine works, it will be possible for two minds to communicate directly. To share the same thoughts and emotions simultaneously. Emotions? The psychiatrist. The intellect is a useful but devious friend. This machine will let me know what the subject is really feeling, way down underneath the intellect. Dr. Hamilton increases the power to the machine, and the oscilloscope comes alive with multiple waves, and the lights flicker, and two silhouettes of skulls merge into one, and we get an image of a brain on the monitor displaying incredible electronic activity. It's at this point that the two doctors are in each other's minds. This is portrayed wonderfully by the two actors' facial expressions. Dr. Hamilton is played by Guy Merrill, whose acting credits include appearances in The Time Tunnel, The Alfred Hitchcock Hour, and Kung Fu, just to name a few. He also made an appearance in The Twilight Zone, where he played Sergeant Joseph Paradine in the season three episode, Still Valley. Ingrid Larkin is played by Sally Kellerman, whose acting credits include appearances in Star Trek, the Alfred Hitchcock Hour, Hawaii Five-O, and Marin in recent years. She will return to the Outer Limits in the season one episode titled, The Bolero Shield. Here the two actors tell the story using only their facial expressions, which I simply loved watching. Backing the emotions shared in this scene is another amazing original score by Dominic Frontieri, which wraps around us like a warm blanket as we watch the scene unfold. Dr. Hamilton never knew Ingrid thought of him that way. Embarrassed, Ingrid offers to resign, but Hamilton persuades her to stay. Just then, the phone rings. It's Colonel Campbell. Yes, Colonel? What can I do for you? I hope you can do something for Major Brothers. I hate to lose my top engineer, but right now I'd call him a sick man. When can you see him? Well, I can see him right away. Can you brief me? Might have been the bump on the head he got last night. He insists the base is invaded by some kind of alien being. Well, uh... I'll call you after I've talked with him. Dr. Hamilton leaves the room to find Ingrid on the phone discussing a suitable replacement for her position. She explains that she isn't embarrassed that Hamilton knows how she feels, but as she puts it, she's also not a masochist. As she shared his thoughts, she felt all his wisdom, insight, and dedication, 
but saw no room for love in his mind. She exits the office and passes Major Brothers, who is being escorted to Hamilton's office by two officers. The two officers stand down as Major Brothers enters Dr. Hamilton's lab. Major Brothers insists that someone wants him declared mentally incompetent. He insists that there is nothing wrong with him. Dr. Hamilton suggests that he try and relax and offers him some coffee. The Brothers declines and pulls out a packet of sunflower seeds. Major Brothers insists that if they had let him blow the mountain with atomic explosives, the base would be free of the evil that is there now. Look, I'll show you. Here. This is the Victoria Channel. Over here is the Baffin Strait. This ridge separating the two is the Hecla Isthmus, a mountain about a half a mile long. Now, with this mountain gone, there would have been a submarine channel all the way through west to Alaska. And that was my job, to get rid of that mountain and the thing on it. You, uh... You said something I didn't quite understand. You, you said the mountain and the thing on it. That's why it's too late. Because the thing that should have been destroyed along with the isthmus is now here on this base. Thing? Can you describe it? Is it human? Alive? Dr. Hamilton thinks this is a result of a head injury brother sustained during the last earthquake. But brothers claims that what happened was no earthquake. All the preparatory work to bring down the mountain was demolished by something else entirely. Oh, you think that, do you, huh? Don't you realize that all the preparatory work on the isthmus has been destroyed? All the shafts caved in before we could plant the atomic cartridges? That's exactly the same kind of damage that an earthquake would. But it wasn't! It wasn't an earthquake! It was the thing moving, breaking out. Splitting the crevasse, coming out, and it must—it must be destroyed before it destroys us. To prevent it, I'm willing to stake my life. I mean that. Risk my life. You don't believe me, do you, huh? Harry Gardino is excellent in this scene. How he works himself up and ultimately falls to his knees, clenching Dr. Hamilton's coat. He really sells the desperation of his situation. As Brothers pleads his case, Dr. Hamilton takes a series of notes. When he finishes, he proposes that Brothers try his machine, stating that it would help him believe his cause. Hamilton applies the headgear to Brothers and begins to power up the machinery. Nervous, Brothers pulls out his sunflower seeds and starts to chew. The amplification is increased and the oscilloscope once again comes alive with multiple waves. The two silhouettes merge into one and a connection is made. Just then, a powerful earthquake shakes the lab causing the machine to malfunction, shooting sparks and sending both men flying out of their chairs. Dr. Hamilton's body gets up and calls out for Dr. Hamilton. When he sees Major Brothers' body laying on the ground, we realize the minds of Major Brothers and Dr. Hamilton have switched bodies. Come on, sit back in the chair and we'll try to, we'll try to undo it. Guards, what are you doing? Take Major Brothers to the hospital and see that he's locked in a safe room. Uh, wait a minute, men. No. I'm not Major Brothers. I am Dr. Hamilton. I was exploring Major Brothers' mind when the earthquake caused a uh, power surge and it reversed our minds. Now, just a minute. I can prove everything I said. Let me conduct some tests. Look, will you call Colonel Campbell, please? Now, I can prove that I am Dr. Hamilton. Now, just listen to me. I was born in Billings, Montana. I went to the University of Chicago. 
I served my internship at the Menega Clinic. Now I can prove everything I say. Listen, now this man is trying to destroy everyone on this base. I'll call and order a strong sedative. Dr. Hamilton, now in Brother's body, is dragged out of the lab, leaving Major Brothers, now the pseudo-Dr. Hamilton, alone in the lab. We see pseudo-Brothers strapped to a table, about to receive sedatives. He insists that he is in fact Dr. Hamilton and begins to give details of a chess game he played with one of the officers, but no one is believing him. The man that you think is Hamilton is Major Brothers. He's sick with guilt and thinks that the base should be punished. He's out to destroy it. He's out to destroy us all! Pseudo-Hamilton enters Colonel Campbell's office. He insists on seeing the atomic cartridge. Colonel Campbell sits Pseudo-Hamilton down and says he believes Brothers is a sick man. I only mean that I've worked with a man a long time and I've seen him change. Change? How? Well, it all started about six months ago. They were out on a small surveying party out in the Isthmus. One of his men didn't come back. I have a Gordon. You must remember the incident. Yes. Yes, I remember. Apparently, Gordon fell into a crevasse and it was impossible to get him out. At least that's the way brothers reported it. Well, it was true, wasn't it? Uh, I wish I knew. Brothers was quite upset when we halted work to investigate. Called it an unnecessary delay. It served no purpose? No, because by the time the rescue party got there, fresh snow had covered everything, so we had to take brothers' word. But during the investigation, one of the men said they wanted to attempt the rescue, but brothers wouldn't permit it. The man in the crevasse may have been dead. An officer must think of the welfare of all of his men, not risk their lives on a possibility. That's exactly what brothers said. How did you know? Well, I... I heard it from him when he was in my office yesterday. Well, yes, of course. I forgot that you fellows can find out anything. Anyway, brothers left Gordon there. And as an officer, he may have done exactly the right thing. Sometimes it's more important to be a man than an officer. And if I'd have been there, I'd have gone down into that crevasse. I don't care if they broke me back to private. I wouldn't leave one of my men down in that ice if there was a whispering chance of getting him out alive. What's wrong, Jim? You look sick. There's nothing. You keep your office too warm. You usually complain that I keep it too cold. Anyway, it was after that that brothers began to change. That's when he started talking about courage, devotion to duty, complaining about delays. It was almost as though he wanted to destroy the Isthmus because that's where Gordon's body lay. That's why I don't think bumping his head on that atomic cartridge had anything to do with it. But of course, if you think otherwise, you'd better look into it. Yes. I'd like Major Brothers to have every chance. I'd like to see that atomic cartridge as soon as possible. In that case, I'll call Major Giles and tell him you have my permission. I think he should be there to explain things. <laughs> He'll have to be there. So here we find out the source of Major Brother's guilt. One of his men, Private Gordon, fell into a crevasse. But instead of attempting a rescue, Major Brothers left the man there to freeze to death. It's interesting to think about. We can each put ourselves in that scenario. And I'm sure most, if not all of us, would say that we absolutely would attempt a rescue. I like to believe that when it comes down to it, we all want to do what's right for our fellow man, regardless of a seemingly hopeless scenario. Well, that makes for a truly inspirational story of the human spirit, but who's to say our self-preservation instinct wouldn't kick in, causing us to leave that man behind 
It's a very real possibility, and if you put yourself in that particular scenario, you can see how feelings of guilt could creep in and ultimately drive you mad. Major Brothers has clearly been driven to the breaking point, to where he believes that destroying that mountain will free him from being haunted by the guilt of his inaction. Pseudo-Hamilton leaves the Colonel's office where he is greeted by Ingrid. She has agreed to stay on the base and help the doctor with his work. Just then, the ghostly apparition of Private Gordon's frozen body appears behind Ingrid and reaches out. Get out. Go back where you belong. Stop accusing. Go! It was your fault, not mine. There was nothing I could do. Doctor Hamilton. Get out! The ghost vanishes, and Pseudo-Hamilton is in a panic. He searches the office frantically for a gun. Ingrid watches in disbelief at the actions of Hamilton. He contacts Major Giles and requests the two meet in a few minutes. Ingrid enters Hamilton's office after he leaves. She discovers a tablet on the desk containing the notes Hamilton took during his assessment of Major Brothers before the experiment. Major Brothers arrived at lab 415. Behavior pattern of deep guilt. Feelings of persecution mixed with delusions of grandeur. Every man is afraid of his brother. See, mean every man is afraid of brothers. Nervous habit of eating sunflower seeds. But what is the thing he sees? Question. Should I link my mind with his to find out? It worked with Ingrid. She places the tablet down and notices an empty packet of sunflower seeds nearby. She heads down to where Major Brothers is being held and tells the attending doctor that Hamilton asked her to speak with Brothers. She comes to the door and comes face to face with Major Brothers. The two stare into each other's eyes and Ingrid knows the truth. Dr. Hamilton's mind is in Major Brothers' body. They won't believe you. That's what I've been trying to tell them myself and they wouldn't listen. And now there's so little time. Major Brother's mind is in my body. He means to destroy the base. Ingrid, you've got to get me out of here. How? The keys. You've got to get the keys. Meanwhile, Hamilton is with Major Giles. They are inspecting the nuclear explosive device. Giles tells Hamilton that the only way to initiate the device is with a key. It's not the kind of a key that you turn. It's a magnetic key. It fits into those two openings there and releases the controls by magnetic force. There's no movement at all. But what does such a key look like? Well, I can't see what bearing that has on the case of Major Brothers, Doctor. But if you're interested, I can show it to you. Now, first I'll need the key that unlocks the key. We see a set of keys left in the doorknob of a linen closet while an officer is grabbing some sheets. Ingrid shoves the officer inside, locks the door, and takes the keys to Major Brother's cell. She unlocks the door, and the two escape through an emergency hatch. Attention all personnel. Colonel Campbell speaking. Major Roger Brothers has just escaped from the hospital. I repeat, Major Roger Brothers. He is dangerous. I repeat, dangerous. Anyone seeing him notify security immediately. Ingrid returns to the office to await the arrival of pseudo-Hamilton. He rushes in and demands to know where the real Dr. Hamilton is. He rushes through the door of the laboratory 
where he is tackled and disarmed by Ingrid and punched by the real Dr. Hamilton. While he's out, they apply the electrode to pseudo Hamilton. The electrode, hurry! Go ahead, kill me. That's what everyone wants to do, kill me. We're not trying to kill you. We're trying to save you. Turn it on. The machine powers up. Just then, Major Brothers, still in the body of Dr. Hamilton, grabs a gun from off the floor. Dr. Hamilton, still in the body of Major Brothers, tackles Major Brothers and delivers a knockout punch, but not before Brothers is able to fire one round into Dr. Hamilton. Both men fall to the floor. Brothers is knocked unconscious as Hamilton is bleeding to death on the ground. Help me. The electrodes, hurry. Hurry. As the amplification increases, Major Brothers sees the ghostly image of Private Gordon once again reaching for him. The machine powers down and Major Brothers falls dead. Ingrid tends to the fallen brothers. No, Ingrid, I'm here. Yesterday I found out that you loved me. I didn't place much value on it, Ingrid. I'm sorry. I guess I just never needed it. <laughs> Too many people need it. But this world needs is more people who want it. How did you know it was my mind and brother's body? I thought you knew. It's your mind that attracts me most. I felt him die. Did you find out what death is? But I'm sure for Major Brothers, it's more pleasant than life. He's free now, the ghost of Private Gordon. The ghost? An hallucination. Creation of his own guilt-ridden mind. When they ask you how he died, what'll you tell him? Only the truth. Major Brothers shot himself. Dr. Hamilton. His mind now back in his body is helped to his feet. And he and Ingrid walk out of the lab as the control voice takes us out. A weapon? No, only an instrument. Neither good nor evil until men put it to use. And then, like so many of man's inventions, it can be used either to save lives or destroy them, to make men sane or to drive them mad, to increase human understanding or to betray it. But it will be men who make the choice. By itself, the instrument is nothing until you add the human factor. Another very enjoyable episode. Probably not one topping anyone's all-time favorite list, but still very good in my opinion. I personally loved all the talk of ionizing radiation. I enjoyed Sally Kellerman's performance, particularly in the scene where she's reading Hamilton's notes. I look forward to seeing her again down the line. Guy Merrill and Harry Gardino are excellent in their dual roles. This is Abner Bieberman's only contribution to The Outer Limits, which is a real bummer because I'd like to see what more he could have brought to the table if given the chance. But our loss was The Twilight Zone's gain. He would go on to direct four episodes of The Twilight Zone. He directed the season three episode, The Dummy, the season four episode, The Incredible World of Horace Ford, 
as well as the season 5 episodes, number 12 looks just like you, and I am the night, color me black. Watching this episode now, you can look at the switching of two identities and think of the Nicolas Cage John Travolta movie, Face Off. Or you can also look at the isolated setting of a base in the Arctic and think of John Carpenter's The Thing, which is of course a remake of The Thing from Another World, which was released about 12 years before this episode. Either way, I feel the story still holds up, and even holds its own when compared to those other stories. Just a few bits of trivia today. A life-size figure encased in translucent amber ice was designed by Byron Haskin and Hua Chang of Project Unlimited. It had frozen stalactites hanging from its arms and a yellow bulb inside its head that would make the eye sockets glow. Though it wasn't used for the episode, it ended up being used in publicity photos for UATV and even on the wrapper used for the Outer Limits trading cards. The frozen body of Private Gordon was played by William O'Douglas, who simply painted his eyes and wore a fatigue jacket covered in plastic icicles. Of course, these bits of trivia can be found in David J. Scow's The Outer Limits Companion. Just a few things before I go. I want to thank iTunes user OL Podcast Fan and Mason Blue for the kind words and generous ratings on iTunes. I also want to thank listener David Kugel for sending in the podcast's first bit of incredible fan art, which I posted on the show's Twitter page. You know, when I decided to start this show, to be honest, I didn't expect anyone to listen regularly, let alone to receive fan art. But to have gotten such positive support and feedback from you guys is truly heartwarming, and, and it inspires me to work that much harder to make the show worthy of your fellowship. Your support and patience is worth more than you'll ever know, so I thank you. For the record, I still don't know how many people actually do listen. I prefer to stay in the dark on that particular subject. Well, if you'd like to share your thoughts and memories of The Outer Limits, you can reach the show via email at victor at theouterlimitspodcast.com. You can find the show at iTunes Pod on Twitter. I also started an Instagram page for the show under the name The Outer Limits Podcast, so if that's your thing, you can find the show there. You can find recent episodes of the show on iTunes, but the archive can be found on the mothership that is the twilightzonepodcast.com. So that's going to do it for now, folks. Join me next time as we cover episode 9 of season 1 titled Corpus Earthling. Until that time, I am Victor Gamboa, and we now return control to you. Round the rugged rock, the ragged rascal ran.